He delivered me and I testify of his goodness. Dropped the shackles of past hoodness and, and sat in heavenly places because God saved me. He redeemed me. He became my rock and I became his fiend. He's my chief cornerstone, my high priest, though issues may come just like a tree planted by the rivers, I shall not be moved. Even if the unemployment rate shoots up to 15%, I won't blame it on the president because God is my defense. Great recession or depression, my confession is to confess him. Speak his promises into my life despite what I can't see. Foreclosures, financial stress, bill collectors, IRS, tax liens, student loans, unhappy home. I'm not alone. I got God. That is my testimony. Like Joshua and Caleb who saw the giants and still confiscated the land. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that walked with God through the fire, and Daniel, who was thrown inside the lion's den and still survived. I love the story of an overcomer. Men and women who faced challenges and still came out on top, saw the grim reaper and grave diggers and dream killers with their third eyes on the prize defied the law of rejection, standing on God's word as their only connection, using faith and hope as co-pilots on this plane called success on the journey to the final destination as it lands at a location where God's glory marks the spot. I am an overcomer. Can't is not in my vocabulary and loser is nowhere to be found in my mental dictionary for I lean completely on the promises of the most high God, you Jehovah. Victory is the light that I see at the end of the tunnel for the spirit of the Lord has ordained my steps and now I breathe the breath of a conqueror which I am more than because I'm a reflection of him who you cannot see and I refuse to stop or slow down till I taking everything that the enemy, the enemy has stolen from me, pressing towards the mark with the heart that beats the rhythm of 20 restless slaves demanding freedom now. With the conviction, with the conviction of Martin Luther King Jr. never satisfied till we have equality now. I am an overcomer and I refuse to be called the son of the Pharaoh's daughter. I slaughter oppression like Joshua and Jericho. These walls that prohibit my elevation to higher ground must come tumbling down. See, I crossed the Red Sea, was baptized with him in the Jordan, witnessed the heavens open up and the Father declared me an overcomer. So I gladly take the dog bites and hit with police sticks and be bruised with the taunts of hatred, persecuted like the first century church in Jerusalem. Bring out the naysayers. I'm already used to them. They come with faulty judges and character assassination attempts. 1,000 may fall in my left, 10,000 may fall in my right, but destruction, destruction shall never come near. I am an overcomer fixed with him sitting in the seat of the righteous awaiting my breakthrough shutting down Babylon these gates of hell will not prevail my story my story has been written by the eternal author before you see the period at the end of the sentence it will be mentioned that I fought the good fight well done my good and faithful servant you saw the giants and you still confiscated the land you walked with God through the fire you overcame the world by the blood of the lamb and by the word of your testimony you are an overcomer you are an overcomer. We are overcomers. We are overcomers. To God be the glory. Hallelujah. 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 Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Amen. Amen. That has nothing to do with the sermon, but Psalms 133, if you can turn there. <laughs> Got to get the jitters out. <laughs> oh, I see feeling. What's going on? <laughs> oh, man. Psalms 133, verse 1 through 3. 
and it reads, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard. Coming down upon the edge of his robes, it is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there, Yahweh commanded the blessing, life forever. And I'm reading out of the NASB. That is typically my favorite translation, but they all say the same thing. Amen? Uh, let's pray. Father God, thank you for such an awesome time to be in your presence. Thank you that you've allowed us to gather, there, gather here this morning. We pray that the word that you will have for us today will speak to us, will move us to do your will, that it will empower us to be a community like no other that we will not only know you, but that we will share who you are and what you have done with us, with the many who have yet to come to know you. Father God, I pray that you will speak through me. I am not necessarily the most articulate. I'm not necessarily the most intellectual, but I pray that you will breathe every word through me that despite my imperfections, that your perfection will be seen, that who you are will be known. I pray that you will clear our hearts and clear our minds to receive your word, and that we will do justice in your name. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen, amen, amen. So Psalms 133, as we just read, according to a Reformed theologian, James Boyce, we don't know exactly um, why David wrote this particular um, song. One of the biggest ideas that have come out, however, is that it may have been written at the time that he had just been crowned the king of all of Israel. Um, when he was crowned, there was a lot of contention going on. He had to fight many battles to get to where he was. And as you know, Whenever there is a leader that is chosen, there's, it's typically at a time that there's contention because not everybody may be accepting of the choice. Amen? And so the assumption is that Psalms 133 was, was written or recited or spoken as a way to kind of unite the people together because under Saul, Israel became a united nation. And so the question would, would be, is this unification going to continue? So it's just kind of like when, we, you know, when you have an election period, kind of like our last election, where, you know, two-thirds of the country were not happy, was not necessarily happy with the results. And the expectation is that, you know, when the president or the president-elect becomes chosen uh, by the people to represent the entire country, that he would say something that would unite, you know, that you unite the whole country together as one. Because elections can be very contentious. I don't care whether you are a Democrat, Republican, or a Libertarian, or Independent. It's typically a very contentious time. People lose friendships during times of elections. <laughs> 
Some people are still not friends. <laughs> Praise God. So I wanted to talk to us kind of about, uh, kind of about uh, really on the subject of our unity here as a body, uh, as a local body, and our unity as a body overall. As part of the body of Christ, I wanted to talk about our unity. And this message is kind of a rehash of what I've just, that I've talked about with, um, with the men during our morning fellowship a couple of weeks ago. So this is kind of a rehash of, what, uh, of that discussion. But God has just laid it upon our, our hearts, you know, me and the men, to really dive into this issue of becoming one, getting past those divisions, those things that separate us. Amen? See, as a local body, we have this vision, which is to build strong families that will transform the nations by exercising kingdom dominion everywhere. That is our call. That is our DNA. That is who we are. That is the reason why we exist here, is that we would fulfill this particular obligation. I remember, I think back in 1995, when I first came to Walt Fan. The vision at that time, I believe, if I quote it correctly, was reaching the lost at all costs and making disciples of all nations. And then after that vision, we had another vision, and that vision was that we would, uh, make, we would know Jesus and make him known by uh, discipling, <laughs> discipling the nations, praying for the unreached, sending forth leaders throughout the earth. It was, I'm quoting, it's been a long time, but... <laughs> and establishing cell churches, which was also part of that vision. But this particular vision is very key, the one that we're under now, is very key because it emphasizes that the family is the essential building block of the nation, and that if God is going to accomplish anything, that the Holy Spirit will work through families to accomplish this, this mission for this particular nation, and not, this particular, not just this nation alone, but all the nations throughout the earth. Amen? Therefore, it is imperative that we appreciate God's vision for our families and make a commitment to one another as a spiritual family with the Messiah, Jesus Christ, as our head. I was watching this miniseries on uh, CNN um, by this lady. Her name is Lisa Ling, and the show is called This Is Life. And I really like this show because it really, you know, talks about different things in our society um, about different subjects that we normally don't talk about or normally don't discuss. And so she brings a lot of these subjects to the forefront. And on this particular show, she talked about um, the Muslim community, especially among African Americans. And, and so basically she was highlighting uh, Islam and its impact on the black community uh, primarily black men in prison, and the positive impact that Islam presents to the structure of the black family. And she talked about how the men in prison were able to find a sense of community, a sense of inner peace and spirituality in the prison systems through Islam in which these men learn spiritual disciplines such as praying together, such as eating together, communing together, and also what it meant to be a man. So in other words, what many of these men have not been experiencing growing up were male role models who were structured, 
who, um, who were structured and practiced what they believed, most critically was the fact that Islam fostered a deep sense of community and a deeper appreciation for manhood. But the psalmist notes, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. That word brother is a, is a universal, uh, is used in a universal application. So it's not just speaking of just men, but it's also speaking of women. Amen? So this concept is not just men alone, but it's also women. So in other words, how good and how pleasant it is for both men and women and children and families to come together, to dwell together in unity. We are relational because God is relational. The whole concept of, of unity is relationship. And because God desires relationship, he created us with a desire of relationship. Amen? Amen. So we desire relationship because God desires relationship. He created that in us. So much so that holidays, which are times of, of joy and celebration for many, have also been times of difficulty for some. Because in holidays, you see whether you have a family or you don't. I remember I just got back from work after Thanksgiving, and I was asking one of my coworkers, like, yo, how was your, how was your Thanksgiving? He was like, huh, yeah, you know. He, was, <laughs> he wasn't happy about Thanksgiving. I said, you need to have a good time with your family? He's like, man, sometimes, sometimes families are the people that you stay away from during these holidays. <laughs> and as sad as it is, this is typically what happens around this country. Families are either united or divided over holidays. People are extremely lonely during times of holidays. Amen? And so... God created us to reflect his image and likeness. And I always talk about the Trinity because God is triune. Because the very, the very core essence of Yahweh is a relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 is commonly known in the Jewish community as the Shema and Y'all can go ahead and put up the slide. And this Shema is the core theology of the Jewish people. This is their call to worship. And in the English, the Shema says, um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But in the Hebrew, it's recited one of two ways. The most popular way is, Shema Israel, Yahweh Elohenu, Yahweh Echad. Another way to say it is Shema Israel, Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Echad. That word Echad, the very at the very end, is a word that is, is translated as one in our English. But another way, another way to translate it is the word unity. So in other words, it's not just talking about a singular one, it's also talking about a unity. And so not only do we worship a God who is one, or we worship one God, but we worship God who is unity. Amen? 
So that when we honor, when we say that we honor the father, at the same time, we're honoring the son. When we say that we're honoring the son, at the same time, we are worshiping the Holy Spirit. At the same time that we worship the Holy Spirit, we're worshiping the father. You can't worship one without the other because they are a unity. And because God is unity, he desires that we worship him in unity. The true concept of worship is a worship where we come together as one and glorify God as one. That's why we can't have beefs or problems with one another because God does not desire that we worship him divided. He desires that we worship him as one people. Amen? The same word for unity in Psalms 133, verse 1, is the root word for one in the Hebrew Shema. That word one is seen even when we talk about um, the coming together of many to become one, to become one particular unit. We see it in, in Genesis chapter 1. The first day, evening first, then morning, is now looked at as one day. Yom Ikad, or Ikad Yom. Husband and wife, when Adam cleaved to Eve, they became Basar, Ikad, one flesh. So one is the unity of many. And so with this understanding, the psalmist is encouraging us to be encouraging us to say how good and how pleasant it is for us to dwell together in unity. There is something special, something beautiful, something unusual, something incredible that happens or takes place when we serve the true and living God and that we're able to come together and glorify him as one. If men who are able to come together under the umbrella of Islam and experience some sense of peace in a location that is designed to dehumanize them. I mean, think about it. This is prison. This is a place where, you know, they make jokes. You got to be careful not to drop your soap. You know, you got to be careful not to look at someone the wrong way because they could kill you. This is a place where lawless people tend to do lawless things and it's understood because it's a prison. I mean, they say they want you to be reformed, but there's really no reformation in a prison system. Because at any given time, the animalistic nature or the animalistic tendencies of human beings in this particular area could take over. But if these men are able to find a sense of peace, a sense of, a sense of unity in a prison system, then how much more than we who worship the true and the living God are demanded to come together, are commanded to come together and worship as one. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers and sisters to dwell in unity. I'm thinking my notes. Oh, there we go. I think I ran a little bit faster, but hey. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, 23 to 25. Hebrews chapter 10, 23 to 25, and it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, forsake not the assembling of yourselves. This is, this is where we know each other. This is where we commune together. This is where we grow as, as a people. Do not forsake the gathering of yourselves. Do not forsake the assembling, the synagogue, the synagogue coming together. Don't forsake that. There's something specifically unique about us in this room. We, have not, we are here not because of our differences. We are here not because of cultural distinctions or even our similarities. We are here because we have a common union. We are here because his body was broken and his blood succeeded. We are here, we are not here because we are perfect. We are here because we serve him who is perfect. And the fact that he lives and he lives through us and he brings us together in unity. One of the most powerful images of unity is found in the next verse. Psalm, or Psalm 133 verse 2. So we're going right back to that Psalm. 133 verse 2 which it says, it is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edges, the edge of his robe. King David gives us the imagery for the unity of God's people. It is the image of Aaron, the brother of Moses, being anointed as the high priest of Israel. In Exodus chapter 29, verse 7, and in Leviticus chapter 8, verse 12, this imagery depicts Aaron being saturated with the anointing oil, which represented the presence, the empowerment, the approval of the Holy Spirit upon that person, in which when a person was anointed for the office of, of a king or the office of a priest, this was a sign to the people that this individual belonged to God and is set apart to God for service. Just like Aaron was anointed by God, God has anointed the church on the day of Pentecost in which Peter testified that God has poured out his spirit upon all flesh. God has anointed the church to be the community of kings and priests. First Peter Chapter 2, verse 9. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim his excellencies, so that for him who calls you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. What a privilege. What a privilege. Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This was a promise 
that God has given to the people of Israel. This was a promise that if they were faithful to the covenant, that he would make them into a nation of kings and priests. And he has extended that, that, that promise to us, fulfilled in his son, Christ Jesus, that we will be a nation that reflects him. And so not only is it good and pleasant that brothers dwell together in unity, but it is also a sign to the outsiders that we are, that we are a community that is one chosen by God to experience his presence. Two, we are a community that is chosen by God to proclaim his excellencies. And then three, we are a community that is chosen by God to continue the work of Christ. These three, these three things, I believe, is the, the sums up the Christian faith. And that if, if the church can only achieve these three things, can only achieve these three things when we dwell together in unity. Amen? Amen? For a long time, I've been trying to figure out how we can best approach, approach the challenge of, evangel, of evangelism and discipleship, specifically uh, for the city of Lawrenceville. We are, in this particular city, we have a population of somewhere around 31,000 people. Last check in 2015, it was mm, 30,000. So between 30, 31,000, 1,000, give or take. The, the poverty level for, for Lawrenceville is 24.4%. That means that out of 31,000, 24% of this population is living in poverty, is facing the financial challenges one way or another. And so families are, are devastated and affect affected in every way. I honestly believe without a shadow of doubt that Wildfan is a local church and God has uniquely established us here to address those issues that are facing the city of Lawrenceville. And I believe that Wildfan has the answers for those families that are in need of the gospel, but how convinced will they be on the outside looking in if we have an issue of unity among ourselves. If we are in unhealthy in our relationships with one another, if we are resentful of one another and have an art against our fellow brothers and sisters, if we have walls of divisions that have been erected based on marital status, based on income, based on professions, based on languages, based on tribes, so the question becomes, how can we build unity amongst our, among ourselves? We can build a stronger sense of unity by following the examples that Christ and his apostles have demonstrated. One, we can build a stronger sense of unity if we take on the attitude of servants and serve each other. Let's look at John chapter 13, verses 12 to 16. John chapter 13, verses 12 to 16. Verse 12. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garment, garments and reclined at the table, again he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? Next verse. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Verse 14. Next verse. 
Okay, there we go. If I then, if I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also, you are also, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do also, you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who was sent greater than the one who sent him. Think about this. God in the flesh, the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who knows the number of hairs on the top of your head, the one who created you, who knows when you are naughty and who knows when you're nice, who's checking his list and checking it twice. This same God in the flesh stoops low to wash your feet. The significance of this is that he is esteeming these men, these disciples, a rabbi who has trained these guys. He is stooping low and he's washing their feet. He's making them more than him. He's counting them greater than he's counting himself. He's taking on the place of servant as if they were his masters. In those days, to wash somebody's feet was a very humbling experience. Think about it. They didn't have shoes like we had. They didn't have Timberlands and Air Jordans. They didn't have Nikes. They didn't have high pumps, you know, high heels and all that stuff. They didn't have stuff that would cover their feet. They walked around primarily in sandals. And in some cases, they didn't have shoes at all. So they're walking. I mean, this is an agrarian society. So they're walking on dirt. They're walking on, on fecal matter where animals had, you know, laid their ways. They're walking on all types of things to get from point A to point B. So imagine having, imagine having to wash the grime and the dirt off of those people's feet. And yet, God in the flesh did not consider himself too high to do the same. He stooped low so that they could feel privileged. This practice of washing feet, I honestly wish it would be brought back to the church today. Because I honestly believe that if we start washing each other's feet, if we really, and I'm just saying that metaphorically, no, we actually should do that, but, uh, in, uh, but look at it from a metaphorical standpoint. If we served each other, despite our accolades, despite how many degrees that we have, despite what titles we have, I don't care if you are a medical doctor and you save lives, I don't care if you are a lawyer like Johnny Cochran and when you step into the courtroom, everybody hears you speak, they have, they have to stop and listen. I don't care whether you know how to recite Hebrew and, and Greek and you know all these theologies. I don't care if you are, I mean, I don't care what profession you have. When you get to the place where you can wash the next person's feet, that would send a message that would radically transform this nation. Amen. That would send a message that would radically transform the world. Even if the most high-minded, the most arrogant person walks in the room, the minute that they know that you're washing their feet, it will radically change their theology. Radically change how they see you and how they see themselves, but most importantly, how they see God. 
Because that's what God is calling us to. God is calling us to a place where we can serve one another despite who we are. Despite our accomplishments. If we can just stoop low so that the next person can be seen as higher, that is powerful. That is very, very powerful. And notice where this was done. This was done at what we know today as the Lord's Supper, but the other way we know it is at the communion table. One of the biggest problems with communion in those days is that you had people that walked in that because of who they were in society, they got treated better than others. So in some, in some cases, those who were very proud, those who were very hotly got treated so good that those who were, who were considered beneath them economically at times went away from the communion table without being able to participate in the Lord's Supper. That was a contradiction to the gospel. It was a contradiction to the unity because the whole concept behind communion is, the, is a common union, a place where we can all come together despite where we are in life, whether you are employed or whether you are employed or not employed, whether you have a degree or don't have a degree, we're all sitting together as one and we're all feasting as one. I'm not seeing you as being lower than me. I'm seeing you as being equal to me. Because the only way that we can approach the throne of God is by his grace, not with our degrees, not with our intellect, nothing. Amen. Number two. So number one, we must take on the attitude of servants and serve each other. Number two, walk in acts of restoration, seeking those who are not here with us. Now, this is very powerful because one of the missions that, that one of the things that Jesus said is that, you know, I'm on a mission to seek and save those who are lost. I'm looking for those who are not in this fold. I'm looking for those who are considered on the outside. Remember Zacchaeus? I mean, this guy was a tax collector. He worked for the IRS in those days. He was hated. Couldn't stand him. He was the one that if you made money, he made sure that he took a huge portion of that money and kept it for not only for Rome, but also he pocketed some of that money himself. Oh, you know how it is when somebody take your money. Oh, you feel it. You know, somebody take five dollars from me. We got a problem, you know, (laughs) you know. Oh, man. But Zacchaeus, oh, he was most despised among the people. However, God visited Zacchaeus. Jesus came into his house, sat with Zacchaeus. I mean, think about it. One of the most popular rabbis at this point wants to come and sit in your house. You're being despised by all the people in the land. They don't like you, but God likes you. And God wants to sit with you. God wants to talk to you. God wants to know how things are going on in your life. And when Zacchaeus responded to the blessings of God, he repented and he said that he would return back all that money that he had stolen, that he had taken from the people, even more than what, they, what he had taken from them. This was an act of repentance. What did Jesus say? Today, salvation has come to your home. He came to, say, he came to bring back those who are lost. Not only did he say that salvation was back, it was back, it has visited your home, He says that you are now truly a child of Abraham. That was a big thing because Abraham was well respected. And if you were a child of Abraham, you were highly regarded. 
Zacchaeus, the mess up, the screw up, the one that everybody hated, the Donald Trump of his time. <laughs> I, I had to go there, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was just play. <laughs> Look, if it, could work for Don, if it can work for Zacchaeus, it can work for Donald Trump. I'm praying for him every day. Every day I'm praying for him. I'm like, God loves you, Donald. God loves you. But he has been, but Zacchaeus was restored back into the community. He was restored back into the family. This is our responsibility as believers, looking for those who are not here, finding ways to restore them, finding ways, seeking them, telling them God has not forgotten you. Come back, come back. Your home is here. Galatians chapter six, one to five. Galatians chapter 6, 1 to 5, walking in acts of restoration, seeking those who are not here with us. Verse 1, it says, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. Each one look into yourselves as that you too would not be tempted. Verse 2, bear one another's burden and thereby Fulfill the law of Christ. Are you under the law? You're under a different law. A law that says you must restore your brother, restore your sister. Next verse. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself, in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. Verse 6. The one who was taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. We have a responsibility to carry one another's burdens. Your problem is now my problem. My problem is now your problem. Every day I think about Brother Richard, who is out there in New Jersey. That's my brother. I love my brother. I am not whole until my brother comes home. Amen? Amen? That's our attitude. I'm not whole. Until he comes home, part of me is in New Jersey. Why? Because he's my family. There are some people that are not here today who worship with us Sunday after Sunday who are missing from our fold. Let's find them. Let's call them. Let's make house visits. Amen? They worship with us. They are family. They're our blood. We are not whole until they're here with us. We are not whole. We are not complete without them. Amen? Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 and 35. Acts chapter 4. Verse 32 and 35 says, And the congregation of those who believe were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. That's a tough one. <sighs> when somebody says, let me borrow your TV. Oh. <laughs> yeah. 
Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Could you imagine that? That the concept of grace, that the very understanding of grace is consistent with ensuring that those who are among us who had a need, had a need in the past tense. In other words, their needs were being met by us. If you're struggling, because your struggle is my struggle, whatever it takes for me to meet that need, I'm going to meet it because we need to come up together. That is the understanding of grace. That's the concept of grace. We were struggling in sin, but the grace of God enabled us to come into his salvation. That the holiness that God, that was only to God and God alone, he wants us to be a part of that holiness. And that was achieved because of grace. And so that same grace is making sure that the needs of those are being met. Amen? Amen. Number three, one that we do pretty well, and that is pray for unity. John chapter 17, verse 20 and 23. I'm going to read this real quick because I don't have a lot of time. It says, I, didn't, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me. Through their word that they may all be one. That, yeah, they may all be one, and even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Praying for unity. The next one, number four, being devoted to each other. Acts chapter 2, verse 46 to 47. Acts chapter 2, verse 46 to 47. This is going to be the last passage that we hit on before I close. Oh, it says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. They broke bread together. They fellowship together. They ate in each other's house. You want to do evangelism? Make a meal. Call your neighbor and say, come eat with me. Come sit with me. Let's sit and talk. When somebody is full, they don't get up and run. You can share the gospel. Amen? That's one of the things that I purpose in my heart for me and my family we're going to be doing in 2018 is that we're going to start making meals and inviting people over. Amen? 
We're going to break bread. We're going to evangelize. Amen. My wife is looking at me like, you didn't tell me this. You know now. <laughs> Amen. So that, that really, in a sense, concludes. Let's pray. Let's pray. Eyes closed. Our heads bowed. Father God, we just thank you for such a time together. Thank you, Father God, that you have called us to a place of unity, that you've called us to a place of being one. Quicken our hearts, quicken our spirit, that we will have a desire to become one, that we will have a desire to seek those who are lost, that we will have a desire to pray in unity, that we will have a desire to serve one another, that we will have a desire to fellowship with one another that would help strengthen our bonds and destroy the walls of division. What separates us, no more. What unites us, the blood of Christ. In the name of Jesus, bring us together so that when the nations see what's going on here and the places that we go, that their eyes will be turned and they will seek you and they will look to you and they say, I want to know Yahweh. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen, amen.